0: Questioning authority. Questioning authority uh, comes natural to us, doesn't it? I mean, especially as Americans. We love to question authority. And and frankly, we have a lot of good reasons to do so. You live long enough and you've seen abuses abuses of authority. You've experienced it or you've witnessed it secondhand. We have plenty of reasons to be suspicious of authority, to question it. But I I want Jonathan Lehman, a brother in Christ and a fellow pastor, uh, to give us this good warning this morning. I'm gonna read this first part here, it's a quote. Christians must recognize the fallen nature of authority, including the potential inside of each of us to abuse it, even with the best of intentions. But to be suspicious toward all authority is both naive and harmful. It leaves you isolated and cynical. Let me say that again. It leaves you isolated and cynical. You become incapable of trust, vulnerability, and true relationship because everything must remain on your own terms. Jesus' authority is no small matter. It's not without consequence We'll see today the Pharisees and leaders question it. They question his very authority this morning. Let's stand together, Luke's Gospel, chapter 20, and we'll begin reading verse 1 through verse 18. Again, Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Beginning in verse one, one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. And Jesus answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Verse five, and they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the parable, uh, to people this parable. A man planted a vineyard. And let it out to tenants, and went into another country for a long while. Verse 10. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants, so that they could would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 11. And he sent another servant, but they also beat. That they also beat and treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 12. And he sent yet another, a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And God bless the reading of his word. Let us pray. Hmm. Lord, we thank you for your word. What an encouragement it is. These songs we've been singing are full, packed full of your word. And we thank you for your word in Luke's gospel, which we've been following for over a year now. Thank you for the way that it brings you to light. Thank you for the way that it brings about the conviction that you have planned. Thank you that your word brings life. May it do what you have planned for it to do in each of our hearts this morning. Please soften our hearts. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see so that we might be both believers and doers of your word. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The title for today's sermon is simply Jesus, the Lord's Cornerstone. And our passage breaks down into three sections, really. The first that we read where Jesus is being questioned is questioning Jesus' authority. We see then the rejecting of Jesus' authority. And then we end with the costly cornerstone. Again, questioning Jesus' authority, rejecting his authority, and finally the costly Cornerstone. Remember from last week, Jesus has just cleansed the temple. He got off the donkey, came in, and he swept out all of the wicked vendors who were caring more about their their selling their wares than they were about worshiping and praying to the Lord. Jesus, we saw last week, was a devoted, faithful priest. And now he comes in each day until that last supper to preach and to teach in the temple and then goes back out to sleep. So we, we see, as you gathered from our first reading of the text, this is not an innocent question that these leaders and these spiritual authorities have of Jesus. I mean, it's not a, a, a stretch to think Jesus poked the hornet's, hornet's nest last week or last, last time he was in the temple and they're coming for a pound of flesh. Their question that we read is a trap. And it's one about authority. Tell us, they say in verse two, by what authority you do these things or who is it that gave you this authority? Now, we'll never know what their follow-up question would have been or what they were hoping to try to accomplish because Jesus answers their question with a question. But don't forget the background of the picture. Jesus is preaching and teaching in the temple. This is a public discourse. There are hundreds or thousands of people the apostles and disciples, probably closest. And then there's this contingency, wherever it is, I don't want you to feel like you're the contingency, but there's a there's a group of these, these, these rabbis, these leaders and civic leaders, all Jews, who are calling Jesus' authority to question. Well, he doesn't answer them directly, but instead he asks them a question. I will ask you a question, verse three. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from me? was the baptism of John the Baptist that we read about in the early parts of Luke from heaven or from man. Oh, Jesus is masterful here, isn't he? He knows what the people have been talking about. They've all been talking about John the Baptist, believing he was a prophet. And these leaders can't ignore this question. They have to save face. As we'll see, their pride, the topic of Nathan's class this morning, is very much... uh, a high priority for them. Verse 5. So you can imagine they they turn into one another and they begin discussing. Well, if we say that John the Baptist is from heaven, he'll say, well, why didn't you believe him? Okay, but but if we say he's from man, we're going to have a riot on our hands. These people are going to lynch us. They're going to stone us to death because they believe he was a prophet. So saving face, if not their own lives, pride is at the key of this discussion. And so what do they say? Well, they say nothing. Verse seven, they answered that they did not know where it, that is John's authority, came from. And Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Notice the came from, past tense, John has been killed by Herod, beheaded. That's also part of our context. So Jesus says, if you don't know where John's authority came from and he was the harbinger to me, then I'm not going to tell you where my authority comes from either. But he tells them a story, a parable, knowing their hard hearts, hoping they will see themselves in the parable and repent before it's too late. Verse nine, a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. pause. So this is a parable and it's allegorical. So we are meant often, as Jesus uh, wants us to in in parables, to see an allegory, a a person behind a person here. So the man, the, the, the owner of the vineyard is God. The tenants are the religious Jewish leaders of the day. And like our last parable, this ruler, this man, standing in the place of God has left, but will come again at an unknown time. Now, notice, he sends his first servant. But, at the end of verse 10, the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. The servant is a prophet. Verse 11, he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 12, and he sent a third servant. This one they wounded and cast out. <clears throat> the tenants are supposed to be harvesting fruit for their master. They're supposed to be harvesting the grapes. And he sends not one, not two, but three different servants to go and retrieve what is his. First one is beaten. The second one is beaten and humiliated. And the third one is beaten so severely, he's wounded. Now, everyone, including Jesus' audience, is expecting something different than what Jesus says the landowner will do with his fourth Servant. He doesn't send a servant now. He doesn't send a prophet. He sends his beloved son. It's shocking. We would expect after three dead servants, this man would, 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 would get together a militia and come in and wipe them out. But no. The owner of the vineyard, who is God, is patient. He's kind. And he sends his beloved son. Now, the beloved son has the same authority as the father, doesn't he? the same rights, the same power. Maybe he thinks they will listen to him. Verse 14, but when the servants, that is the tenants, excuse me, the tenants saw him, that is the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. They decided to kill him, thinking somehow, crazily, that the land would pass to them, that which is impossible legally. It's still the owner's land. But sin never did make sense. So they cast him out of the vineyard and slaughter him. And it's likely here that Jesus changes his vocal inflection. Imagine with me, you can hear now the question in his voice. What will the owner of the vineyard do? The father of this murdered son, what will he do? He asked the crowd, and they're thinking what he's thinking. Well, he will come and destroy those tenants, verse 16, and give the vineyards to the others. Now, remember, the tenants here are the religious leaders who asked Jesus this very question, trying to corner him on something. So they cry out, it seems as as if in a unison chorus, surely not, They see where Jesus is going with this. Do you see it? He's saying God is going to come and destroy them and will give the leadership over to others. Surely not, they yell. But then, not only does Jesus change his inflection, but he looks right at them. Luke notices this or says this. One of the apostles noticed it. He clearly looks at them and faces them. And says in verse 17, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. In short, Jesus is warning and reminding the religious leaders and the civic leaders of the great peril of rejecting him, the Lord's cornerstone. So Jesus is quoting a familiar passage here. One that we read, Michelle read here at the beginning of service, and we read a little bit of last week because it was quoted last week. It's Psalm 118. It's the psalm the crowds and disciples were singing as Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on the back of a donkey. It's most likely the last psalm they will sing before they go into the Garden of Gethsemane. You see, this is one of the Egyptian halels or Egyptian praise psalms. Psalms 113 through 118, six, were traditionally sung every Passover and Feast of Tabernacles, every year for centuries. The religious leaders knew every one of these psalms. The disciples, the apostles knew all these psalms. They're, they're, think of like, popular Christmas songs like Silent Night or or others. You you just know them. You know verse one, verse two. They, They knew this psalm very well. It was familiar to them. It was memorized for many of them, no doubt. But it didn't occur to me until I was reading one of my favorite commentators on this, the punch in verse 22 of 118. It's the first time in the psalm That you realize that the enemy of God and his people is not a foreign nation, but the leaders themselves. The enemy again of Israel isn't the foreigners, but their very own leaders, the builders. The stone that the builders rejected. Not the Romans, not the Syrians, not the Egyptians, the builders. The very leaders of Israel, the elders, are the enemy in Psalm 118. And Jesus applies this to the leaders who have just questioned his authority. The stone that the builders rejected. And those builders get the message. Surely not, they had said. They were the tenants who killed the father's son. They were the tenants destined to be thrown out of the city. They were the builders who had become God's enemy. How terribly ironic. The very builders of the temple, so to speak, were rejecting its very cornerstone, Jesus. And make no mistake, they understood who Jesus is in this parable. He's that beloved son. And and in this quotation, he's the cornerstone everyone who falls on that stone will be broken, literally shattered to pieces, un- unrepairable. There's not enough, there's not enough uh, glue to put them back together. And when it falls on anyone, you-, you know if you've seen an older building, the cornerstone is often a very large stone. It just crushes you. There's no, there's, there's, there's no resuscitation after being crushed by such weight. So Jesus is closing with a very serious warning. But I don't think it's said in a sense in which he wishes to relish their destruction. It's a warning. It's a very severe warning. It's truth, but there's love. In fact, last week, it's what he wept about as he looked out over the city of Jerusalem and he wept. Jesus often encounters, encountered rejection in his day, and he still does in our day today. There's, Outward rejection—that's the person, like the leaders here, who just reject Jesus outright. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in God. I want nothing to do with it. Or, or it's that—it's that—it's that cult that takes Jesus out of the scriptures and makes God in its own image. It's—it's—it's it's, uh, it's the Mormons. It's Jehovah's Witnesses. It's—it's it's the Oneness. Pentecostal movement that doesn't see the Trinity and fill in your your heretical movement. They they take Jesus out of the equation or they they change him so that he's different than what we read in the scriptures and they're lost. They trip over this stone and they are shattered. They're crushed. There's no salvation in those, quote, churches. They may look nice on the outside, but on the inside they're dead and their works will not save them. There's also subtle rejections, and that's what I have to admit came to my mind when I was reading this passage, the first and second and third in time. Um, th- these, are, these are those who, who ask those kind of innocent questions of interpretation and historical context. They're not so much a frontal assault. They're a little more of an end around. Did Jesus really mean, did the scriptures really say it's, it's that type of thing that's really popular today. Not that it hasn't been popular in the past, but it's, it's the type of questions that throw out historical orthodoxy, which is what, in other words, what Christians have believed for millennia. And it questions the very basics of sexuality, of marriage, of who I am as a person, of, 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 of gender, of men and women and their roles, and even, of course, authority. Nothing new here either, Solomon said. Nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes 1.9. Whatever culture the gospel comes into, whatever time period, whatever language, whatever continent, of course the world, of course common culture doesn't like Jesus. And friends, if we're honest, many of us didn't either. I was that 18-year-old kid who had said, I don't want to follow the faith of my parents I don't believe in Jesus anymore. I don't want it. He's narrow-minded. He's whatever. I want to do what I want to do. I'm Lord of my life, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Nothing new here. Just maybe a little more subtle when we question authority as opposed to outright living in rebellion of it. <clears throat> now, don't, don't get me wrong. We always have questions. We always wonder. None of us understands fully. So doubting Thomas is there for a reason. That's okay to doubt in the pursuit of faith. But when our questions become questions of authority, what happens is we exchange God on the throne for ourselves. It's like Indiana Jones in the first movie when he's got that golden idol there and he's got the bag of sand. We know it's not the same thing. He's hoping the pedestal does. Jesus, friends, here in the passage clearly sees himself as the cornerstone. The Bible clearly sees Jesus as the culmination of all that the Old Testament was pointing to. Any rejection of Jesus, friends, means there's no salvation. You can't be saved if you reject the Savior. The cornerstone that is Jesus and which is being rejected today, just as he was, 2,000 years ago, is both within sovereign, God's sovereign control, and it's also good news. So I want to close with the good news of Psalm 118, what we read earlier, that I hope you now see with newer eyes. The psalmist in this third section of the psalm is speaking on behalf of God's people. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. He's crying out to the Lord to open up the gates. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. And friends, that gate is Jesus. I thank you that you have, be- you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And notice the sovereign control here. And this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Notice the plural. Notice the us's. Notice the we. It's not just you or me, it's us together. We need Jesus as a community of Christ followers. We need to submit to his authority and enter through the gate that only he can secure. Let me close with the quote that I began with. Lehman continues, the difference between what people call community and what the Bible calls the church finally comes down to the topic of authority. The assembly is not only a fellowship, but an accountability fellowship. Led by God's good gift of pastors and teachers, the Christian life will grow best, flower most beautifully when nourished in this greenhouse. But beware the dangers, the weeds, and the toxins remain. So friends, may Jesus be our Lord freshly today. May we submit ourselves to his ultimate authority as his submissive servants, so that his church, that is who we are, can be his representatives in this community and be a beacon of hope for the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your good word. We thank you for your sovereign plan that you knew the Jews of old would reject you, that the Romans would crucify you, but you did this as the song said so well to conquer death through your death. It is glorious in our sight. We are a people, your people, who celebrate your death and rejoice in your resurrection. We put all of our hope, all the eggs in in your basket, that you can and have forgiven any man, woman, or child's sins who comes to you in belief and repentance. We take hold because you have taken hold of us and have promised to never let go, that you are a good shepherd, that you will not lose one of your flock. Ferret out in our hearts where we have pride, where we are questioning your scriptures, not in the pursuit of faith, but because of our sinful rejection of your authority. Let us not condemn ourselves to hell through our pride and our desire to be our own gods, but save us from ourselves so that we might be trophies of your grace. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus.